Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Lawrence, who is with the Center for a Livable Future, a professor in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where he also holds joint appointments as professor of health policy, international health, and medicine. He's the founding director of the Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, which supports research and develops policies related to the public health impacts of industrial food animal production, improving food security, and adopting healthier diets. He has a distinguished career. Uh, He's taught at the University of North Carolina, chief of medicine at the Cambridge Hospital in Cambridge, Mass., And from 1991 to 95, he directed the Health Sciences Division at the Rockefeller Foundation. Bob, I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you, Kelly. It's great to be here. Let's talk about CAFOs. Can you tell people what CAFO stands for and what they are? Uh, CAFO, C-A-F-O, Confined Animal Feeding Operations, a phenomenon that's largely uh, post-World War II, although the very first CAFOs were on the eastern shore of Maryland, uh, the Delmarva Peninsula, where in early 1930s, uh, for the first time, large poultry flocks were put together in confinement. And now, of course, it's spread to the swine industry, to the cattle industry, to the dairy industry. And give us a, a scope, if you will, of the size of these operations. The um, typical CAFO, a standard uh, CAFO, has to have at least a thousand animal units, and a thousand animal units is derived by a uh, thousand beef cattle, seven hundred and fifty dairy cattle, or about twenty thousand broilers. And many, many CAFOs will have animals in literally in the tens of thousands in the poultry industry. Typical uh, poultry house would have twenty-five to thirty thousand broilers. Uh, typical swine CAFO would have 1,000 to 1,500 animals in a barn and maybe six, eight, or 10 barns. So these are very, very large, concentrated operations. And why has modern food production moved in this direction? It was uh, thought that uh, concentration, standardization, uh, replication, uh, all of these things would achieve economies of scale and produce cheaper meat for the consumer. Uh, lots of economists now question that and feel that the economies of scale probably disappear at around 1,500 animals in the swine industry. Um, and the unintended consequences of CAFOs, of course, have been much, much more severe than anybody anticipated. So with the concentration of the animals comes concentration of waste. Uh, the typical swine facility will have these large open cesspits, which are euphemistically called lagoons, but they really are just open cesspits. Uh, The amount of uh, waste from the poultry CAFOs ends up being applied to adjacent fields, but in quantities much, much greater than the crops can absorb. So we have runoff, pollution of surface and groundwaters. It's just created a huge mess. The public is becoming more aware of these dangers at least from my perception. Do you agree with that? I do. Um, Initially, like so many other things in our country, um, there was uh, a certain element of uh, environmental 
injustice. A lot of the largest CAFOs were placed in communities of color in the South. Uh, they were placed in poor rural communities that had no political power. But now, uh, with their expansion, more and more people who are empowered feel as though they can speak out, are organizing, pressing uh, for correction of this problem. Um, there's something called the, sustain, uh, the Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, which has uh, farmers trying to farm in a sustainable, ecologically sound way who have organized across the country to fight back against CAFOs. So the public is getting much more aware. How are CAFOs unsustainable? So one, one issue we'll talk about in a subsequent podcast is the heavy use of antibiotics right. in these settings. And you mentioned waste as a big issue. Are there other areas of concern with sustainability? I think the main uh, area of concern is the fact that uh, you know, over thousands of years of animal husbandry with the evolution of agriculture from its very earliest beginnings 10,000 years ago, uh, we have turned something, animal waste, that used to be a highly important part of soil improvement, of uh, organic fertilizer, um, into a toxic substance. And the concentration of the CAFO waste is probably ultimately going to be its undoing. Pollutes air, water, um, has a noxious fumes, uh, hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, in amounts that are now measurably harming neighbors, uh, human neighbors. So I think that's probably the really ultimately the Achilles heel. The second biggest part uh, is that I think as people get to know more about how animals are treated in CAFOs, there's been a tremendous pushback about inhumane treatment. Uh, the fact that uh, the pigs have to have their tails docked uh, so that they don't chew each other's tails off under the stress of confinement. The fact that uh, the broilers all have to have their beaks clipped so that they don't peck each other. Um, all of these now, many have been captured on uh, uh, filming uh, CAFO workers who have smuggled video recordings. There are ag-gag rules now in effect in many states and lots of states now under pressure from industrial agriculture trying to pass new laws. So the combination, I think, of concerns about animal welfare, concerns about management of the enormous amounts of waste, uh, and ultimately the fact that these costs to society that have been externalized are now being brought uh, home, uh, literally home to roost, uh, is making it harder and harder to see this as a viable model. For people who aren't familiar with the, the details of these operations, could you paint a picture of how serious the confinement is, like how many animals and how much space and how what's their freedom for movement and things? Yeah. Well, let's take a typical poultry barn. Imagine um, an area about the size of a uh, tennis court housing 24,000 birds so that uh, when they're first put in as chicks, plenty of room to move around, but by the end of their 47 or 48-day growing cycle, as they're about to be rounded up and taken off for slaughter, uh, they literally are adjacent to each other. There's absolutely no free space on the floor of that uh, space. A barn for a uh, 
hog confinement operation might be a little longer than a tennis court, maybe uh, two tennis courts in length. And it will house uh, 1,000 to 1,500 animals. And by the time they're ready for slaughter, they're 250 pounds. They literally are uh, jammed together with absolutely no uh, movement. Uh, they defecate and urinate onto slatted floor. Uh, the ammonia released in the lagoon underneath the barn before it gets pumped into the adjacent uh, cesspit uh, creates significant problems for the animals. Uh, so they have huge exhaust fans blowing through. Uh, and of course, that's spewing all of the ammonia and hydrogen sulfide and other things out into the neighborhood. Um, more people have probably seen open photographs of uh, uh, feedlots because that you can take those photographs from the highway. You don't have to uh, smuggle a camera into a CAFO. Uh, and there you have uh, tens of thousands of animals in a football-sized field uh, or greater. Part of the need for CAFOs has been the increasing demand for meat around the world. And I, from what I understand, the increase in beef and pork consumption in countries like India and China are really significant. So are CAFOs likely to become a growing problem outside the U.S.? To whatever extent they're a problem now, are they likely to become more so? Yes, indeed. The, uh, the exporting of the CAFO model has already uh, taken place to China, Brazil, Poland, uh, many other parts of the world. China today is the leading consumer of pork. Uh, they raise, kill, and consume about 450 million animals a year. The United States, our pork production and consumption, including some export, is about 130 million. So proportionately, given the relative populations of China and the United States, uh, you'd say, well, that's about what you would expect, except for the fact that China has uh, essentially been chasing the water table down of the northern China plain where their grain is produced uh, at around 20 centimeters a year. So they're now importing water from Brazil, but they're importing it in the form of soybeans since it takes about 1,000 kilograms of water to produce a kilogram of grain, and it takes about four kilograms of grain to produce a kilogram of pork each kilogram of pork raised and produced in China requires 4,000 kilograms of water, and there's no water in China to support that. So now we have this uh, phenomenon of uh, Brazilian rainforest being cleared to grow soybeans as a convenient way of transporting water to China to feed a hog population of 450 million. And it doesn't take a lot of thought to realize that that's just not going to be sustainable. Other parts of the uh, world, uh, the demand for meat in the diet does seem to be a universal human phenomenon. Urban elites in some of the poorest countries of sub-Saharan Africa uh, are demanding more meat. Uh, the uh, the so-called jungle meat trade uh, is devastating species throughout sub-Saharan Africa. So we need to somehow figure out how to help people curb that appetite for meat, uh, find substitutes. The U.S., the best estimate is that about 65% of our dietary protein now comes from meat. 
Globally, it's about 30%. And there are very, very healthy societies where it's down around 5%. There are a number of environmental concerns uh, regarding the production of meat for consumption. Um, You mentioned one, which is the inefficient use of water and the depletion of water tables around the world. But I know there are other concerns as well, Mm -hmm. and one of them has to do with uh, the impact of the meat production on climate change. Could you explain how that works? Yes. Um, The Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN uh, issued a report a few years ago called The uh, Long Shadow of Animal Husbandry. And they estimated that perhaps as much as 18% of greenhouse gases globally are coming from animal husbandry. A combination of the uh, methane that's emitted by cattle, uh, the CO2 that's produced in the burning of uh, fossil fuels and other means of production, and then the nitrous oxide, which is, of course, the most potent of the uh, greenhouse gases, about 240 times more potent than CO2, uh, from (coughs) perturbations in the soil and application of fertilizers and so on. You add it all up, forest clearing for pastures, uh, intensive row crop production for feed, and the application of large amounts of uh, nitrogen fertilizers, and then the animals themselves, and then the fossil fuels used in the whole industrial production. Uh, It comes out to a very substantial part. Some estimates uh, say it's even higher than that, but I think uh, the 18 to 20 percent is probably uh, fairly accurate. So when you think of just that one sector alone uh, and a growing appetite for meat and meat products, it means that we really have a serious problem on our hands. Well, given the serious nature of the problems, do you see any cause for hope? I think the mixture of uh, appealing to people's environmental concerns and appealing to their own personal health needs and appealing to their instincts for Uh, decent and humane treatment of animals, uh, all can make a very compelling story. And what interests me, um, as somebody who's not trained in psychology as you are, is whether each of us has a, a unique entry point for being motivated to change our behavior. For some, I think the health story, the kind of uh, work that Walt Willett and some of his colleagues published last year Uh, from the uh, health professionals' longitudinal study, 2.9 million person years of follow-up, showing essentially a dose-response curve for all-cause mortality related to how much meat, especially processed meat, uh, you're consuming. And then you have other people who are highly motivated by things like Prop 2 in California, the idea of battery cages for the eggs we consume or the uh, idea of gestation crates for the uh, swine uh, industry uh, move some people in a way that health concerns simply don't. And then there's a growing number of young people who really find the climate change argument very compelling. So you're talking about a a grassroots movement that people become concerned about these and hopefully that would end up in some action. What role does government play here? Uh, Government plays a very important role with uh, regulation. Uh, It's hard to believe that it's been uh, 40 years since the passage of the Clean Water Act, and yet the runoff from most CAFOs is still not regulated under the Clean Water Act. 
So we need to take the tools of government, use them appropriately, and where they need to be updated, update them. Uh, similarly, it's um, 40 years since the Clean Air Act, and yet CAFOs are exempt from monitoring and measurement of uh, ammonia and hydrogen sulfide gases uh, from the Clean Air Act. So uh, there are these loopholes, concessions made early on under the political influence of industrial agriculture uh, that really need to be uh, corrected. Other areas of, um, I think, labeling and uh, uh, a little bit more openness about how the whole process works would be very important as well. Well, it, it, it is it's amazing when you think about how serious these concerns are, how powerful these influences are in the United States and increasingly around the world. It's nice to hear some optimism from you about public opinion changing and government potentially getting interested in this. So thanks very much for joining us. You're welcome. Our guest is Dr. Robert Lawrence, <clears throat> director of the Center for a Livable Future and professor in the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, please look at our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. You'll find a variety of resources on food and food policy issues, including links to other excellent podcasts that we've recorded. Thank you.